0: Chapter twenty two of the Technique of the Mystery Story. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sonia. The Technique of the Mystery Story by Caroline Wells. Chapter twenty two Evidence. One The Coroner in case of a murder the inquest should follow as the night the day the scales of justice is a book which aside from its very clever pages has most interesting and enlightening aphorisms at the head of its chapters one of these tells us when evolution has produced a perfect thing it stops working crowner's quest law has not changed in three centuries this is by way of a fear at the coroner's inquest another current authority says mr coroner has been losing his importance so rapidly that not long ago it was seriously proposed to do away with him and his utterly useless performances however he is still in power but it is a very much shorn power nowadays mr arthur c train refers to this subject in stronger terms the coroner says he is at best no more than an appendix to the legal anatomy and frequently he is a disease the spectacle of a medical man of small learning and less english trying to preside over a court of first instance is enough to make the accused himself chuckle for joy this argues a good sense of humour on the part of the accused but mr train must know whereof he speaks but be that as it may the coroner has not yet been ousted from his position in detective fiction and is too picturesque a figure to fear imminent dethronement on the contrary, this official gives opportunity of for what is known as a character sketch, and is often described as if with the author's keen relish for satire. For instance, this description is quoted from The Scales of Justice by George L. Knapp. Coroner Lutgers was the sort of doctor who gets a political job or goes to advertising within three years of his graduation. In one capacity or another, he had been drawing public money for twenty years and meant to continue in the same occupation for twenty years more his strong point was dignity a dignity much resembling a safety night lamp for no matter how often it was tipped over it always righted itself to gleam austerely from the doctor's bald forehead and patriarchal whiskers at this particular inquest the doctor's dignity lacked something of its usual calm it was not a case in which the public would willingly accept the person or persons unknown verdict and yet for the life of him the coroner could not see how any other verdict was possible however we still cling to the coroner as a necessary and desirable member of our detective fiction family and we feel that we could better spare a better man two the inquest the inquest in detective fiction came in with the murders in the rue morgue where it is used as a vehicle for telling much of the story since then the inquest has been a prominent incident in most of the murder stories of detective fiction and as it can be made to present all manner of thrilling and exciting scenes and also as it is most useful in leading or misleading the reader it will probably remain with us in a short story the inquest is seldom if ever described in detail because of lack of space but in a full book the inquest provides several chapters of interesting and instructive reading po, ruled as ever by his exact economy of attention and moreover because his story is a short one after all gives merely the gist of the inquest listing the witnesses in descriptive fashion and tersely reporting their depositions i zangwill in the big bow mystery takes advantage of his inquest scene to indulge in sarcastic humour and veiled innuendos anna Catherine green is conscientious and straightforward in her inquest recitals while the earlier French authors are diffuse and elaborate in their descriptions, taken by and large, the inquest is invaluable to the detective story writer. It affords such necessary opportunities for cataloguing details without seeming to do so, for convincing the reader that the innocent are the criminals, for introducing and characterizing the actors, and for setting the stage with the necessary properties for the future scenes of the drama. Three, the witnesses the principal element of the inquest is of course the witnesses and their testimony few realize that the nursery tale of cock robin partakes of the nature of an inquest in the first line who killed cock robin we are informed as to the crime and the victim this is immediately followed by the complete confession of the criminal and the disclosure of the weapon i said the sparrow with my bow and arrow i killed cock robin this is a frank enough confession and doubtless true but even a confession must have corroborative witness and an eye-witness if possible hence we read who saw him die i said the fly with my little eye i saw him die and this investigation this testimony of an eye-witness presented in an entertaining manner is the reason for the introduction of the inquest in our story the witnesses are naturally the characters of the book the jurymen are but transients and are not heard of again after their verdict is rendered but the witnesses comprise the chief movers of the machinery and it is in their power to make or mar the plot for if the plot of a detective story is the knot and is unravelling the evidence of the witnesses constitutes the strands of the skein. the plot is the skeleton but the evidence and the deductions therefrom are the muscle and sinew on the value and presentation of the evidence does the reader's interest depend. No matter how absorbing the puzzle, if the evidence and deduction be not full of action and surprise, the story palls. 4. Presentation of the evidence. Indeed, it is the chain of evidences, all more or less surprising, that holds the reader's interest through the five hundred pages of The Moonstone, where the puzzle is only a jewel robbery. And here is one reason why real murder trials are not as interesting as fictional ones for the newspaper reports are plain accounts of the evidence found whether entertaining or not but the wily detective author need introduce no evidence that is not picturesque or exciting the author should know exhaustively the truth about evidence its real value and meaning and knowing this utilize such knowledge at will learn too the difference between vital and incidental evidence Sherlock Holmes remarks, It is of the highest importance in the art of detection to be able to recognize out of a number of facts which are incidental and which vital. Otherwise, your energy and attention must be dissipated instead of being concentrated. Now, in this case, there was not the slightest doubt in my mind from the first that the key of the whole matter must be looked for in the scrap of paper in the dead man's hand. Of course, since the scrap of paper was put there by the author for that very purpose but a close study of conan doyle's stories will prove the best lesson in collating and understanding evidence five circumstantial evidence learn too the difference between circumstantial evidence and the testimony of an eyewitness remember circumstantial evidence must be strong and well attested to convict a murderer remember too how rarely it is the case that a murderer allows an audience when he commits his crime learn to adjust for yourself the harmonization of these statements this point is reduced to an absurdity in melville d post's story the corpus delicti in this story an atrocious murder is committed but with diabolical cleverness the criminal utterly destroys the body of his victim by the use of chemicals when the trial is on and overwhelming circumstantial evidence proves the crime the counsel for the prosecution says man may lie but circumstances can not the thousand hopes and fears and passions of man may delude or bias the witness yet it is beyond the human mind to conceive that a clear complete chain of concatenated circumstances can be in error hence it is that the greatest jurists have declared that such evidence being rarely liable to delusion or fraud is safest and most powerful the machinery of human justice cannot guard against the remote and improbable doubt. The inference is persistent in the affairs of man. It is the only means by which the human mind reaches the truth. If you forbid the jury to exercise it, you bid them work after first striking off their hands. Rule out the irresistible inference, and the end of justice is come in this land. And you may as well leave the spider to weave his web through the abandoned courtroom. This is rational and straightforward but the counsel for the defence reports i care not if the circumstantial evidence in this case were so strong and irresistible as to be overpowering if the judge on the bench if the jury if every man within sound of my voice were convinced of the guilt of the prisoner to the degree of certainty that is absolute if the circumstantial evidence left in the mind no shadow of the remotest improbable doubt yet in the absence of the eyewitness this prisoner cannot be punished and this court must compel the jury to acquit him this is unanswerable and after much hesitation the judge spoke thus in this case the body has not been found and there is no direct proof of criminal agency on the part of the prisoner although the chain of circumstantial evidence is complete and irresistible in the highest degree nevertheless it is all circumstantial evidence and under the laws of new york the prisoner cannot be punished I have no right of discretion. The law does not permit a conviction in this case, although every one of us may be morally certain of the prisoner's guilt. I am, therefore, gentlemen of the jury, compelled to direct you to find the prisoner not guilty. This is an erratic plot, but founded on absolute knowledge of the law and resulting in a most picturesque use of circumstantial evidence. In this connection, we might refer to a speech of Jacques Futurel's hero detective. Who thus delivers himself circumstantial fiddlesticks snapped the thinking machine i wouldn't convict a yellow dog of stealing jam on circumstantial evidence alone even if he had jam all over his nose he squinted truculently at hatch for a moment in the first place well-behaved dogs don't eat jam he added more mildly indeed most detective stories are simply the case of the dog with the jam on his nose and the plot is mostly concerned with proving that that particular dog is not the criminal after all six deductions from evidence the evidence whether at the inquest or at the trial must be carefully chosen not only for its own attractive or surprising character but with a view to its material for deduction and analysis a burnt match on the stairs of an elevated railroad station offers the casual observer little clue but a burnt match of a particular style on those same stairs, proving the hour when the criminal lit his big black cigar, is of immense importance in leading to a conclusion, foregone in the author's mind, but not in the reader's. Remember, it is resolution that counts. The interest depends on the fact of that match being a beacon light, and proving its illuminative power as the tale goes on no burnt match has a right to be in a detective story unless it is a lamp to the feet of the detective and a light to a path either right or wrong but intentionally so though circumstantial evidence may depend on personal testimony it is oftener deduction from inanimate clues preferably small ones but always unexpected or incongruous ones in one of the astro stories the reader's interest is at once aroused by an unknown baby found in the street playing with a priceless fire-opal and a black dead hand had the child held a rattle and a doll no curiosity would be felt as to the situation this of course goes back to the accepted principle of the value of the bizarre seven deductions from clues but even more advantageous than this is the use of the infinitesimal clue when not irrationally lugged in Shreds, revelings, scrapings of dust from boot heels or scraps of paper are all much prized as fictional evidence. In one of the best recent detective stories a red shoe button figures as the clue to a murderer. In one of Otto Longhi's stories a waistcoat button is the clue. Of course buttons are a favorite clue as they can conveniently drop off and stay behind on the scene of the crime, or can even be pulled off the criminal's clothing by the frantic clutch of the victim a story by melville d post entitled the missing link hinges upon the loss of a cuff but this particular clue is rather hackneyed and it even cropped up again in the trevor case a very popular recent novel and also plays its part in the circular staircase the great sergeant cuff in the moonstone first describes the value of a tiny clue by way of instructing his reader and then goes on to work up a small smear on a freshly painted door into a clue of immense importance. In The Silent Bullet, the clue is so minute as to require a very powerful microscope to discern it. The paragraph quoted below describes the impression of the threads of woven material on a leaden bullet, which, though scientifically possible, is certainly a novel and ingenious bit of evidence for a detective story. Every leaden bullet, as I have said, which has struck such fabric, Bears an impression of the threads which is recognizable even when the bullet has penetrated deeply into the body it is only obliterated partially or entirely when the bullet has been flattened by striking a bone or other hard object even then as in this case if only a part of the bullet is flattened the remainder may still show the marks of the fabric a heavy warp say of cotton velvet or as i have here homespun will be imprinted well on the bullet but even a fine batiste containing one hundred threads to the inch will show marks even layers of goods such as a coat shirt and undershirt may each leave their marks but that does not concern us in this case now i have here a piece of pongee silk cut from a woman's automobile coat i discharge the bullet through it so i compare the bullet now with the others and with the one probed from the neck of mr parker I find that the marks on the fatal bullet correspond precisely with those on the bullet fired through the pongee coat. Nearly all of the Sherlock Holmes stories depend on the deductions from tiny clues so finely drawn as to be sometimes a strain on the reader's credulity. But the credulity of the experienced reader of detective fiction becomes exceedingly agile, and he can believe any number of impossible things from before breakfast until long after midnight. Of course this use of tiny clues is the direct result of the principle of microscopic observation and it is inseparable from the work of the transcendent detective in that affair next door the astute miss butterworth finds for a clue a small black pin a small matter she declares to the reader but it points in the right direction in a story of ashton kirk the clue is the tiny but symmetrically shaped bit of pasteboard punched from a railroad ticket indeed all detective stories fairly bristle with these tiny clues but there are plenty yet unused the alert detective story writer can find many that will serve his purpose a single shred of excelsior found on the floor of a room where no carefully packed bit of china or bric-a-brac has been unwrapped will prove the presence of the only man under suspicion who received such a box by recent parcel delivery or a tiny shiny spangle may lead as unerringly to a certain evening gown of a certain grand dame as a grain of rice in a hat brim proves a bride or straws in the hair a farmer. But these things must have some sort of a subtly indicative interest. Nobody wants to read of a dead leaf fallen from a tree merely to prove that it is autumn. And so it is the author's work to provide clues that lead to something and that pique the reader into endeavoring to find out for himself what it is eight evidence by applied psychology a new kind of evidence has appeared of late in detective stories that is not deduced from an inanimate clue or voluntarily spoken by a witness it is the scientific procedure known as applied psychology it necessitates apparatus with such impressive names as chimographs and tachistoscopes and ergographs and it may be learned in its general plan from professor munsterberg's book on the witness stand this science aims to assist and serve such fields of practical life as education medicine art economics and law but the book in question considers only problems in which psychology and law come in contact they deal essentially with the mind of the witness on the witness stand and their purpose is to turn the attention of serious men to this science the detective writer who wishes to make a point of the credibility of testimony of witnesses Cannot do better than to make a close study of the principles set forth in this book nine direct observation as a matter of fact the inquest or trial scene in detective fiction makes a great point of the testimony of eyewitnesses yet really the utter unreliability of eyewitnesses has often been remarked upon and hawthorne in his notebook says every day of my life makes me feel more and more how seldom a fact is accurately stated how almost invariably when a story has passed through the mind of a third person it becomes so far as regards the impression that it makes in further repetitions little better than a falsehood and this too though the narrator be the most truth-seeking person in existence how marvellous the tendency is is truth a fantasy which we are to pursue forever and never grasp now it is sufficient to pay attention to the conversations in which we take part every day to discover that the worth of evidence depends to a very small degree on the good faith or the moral value of the witness who is there who has not seen for himself to what an extent accounts of the same fact may differ even when related by serious witnesses endeavouring to keep scrupulously to the truth nothing indeed is more difficult than to tell the truth that is to say to recount the past to make a deposition upon some fact even if the fact be one which has come a great number of times under our own eyes to prove that this is so let the reader make the following simple experiment without any preliminary ask a number of persons kindly to draw from memory the figure which indicates six o'clock exactly as it appears on the dials of their watches you will find that some of these persons will simply write the figure vi or six Others, sharper, remembering that the figures take their line of direction from the center of the dial, will write the symbol upside down, i inverted v, or nine. Everybody, however, will be quite convinced that this particular testimony is correct, and ready to swear to it on oath. Now ask them to take out their watches and look at them. Most of them will discover to their stupefaction that the figure vi, or i inverted v, which they saw so clearly at the foot of the imaginary watch floating before their mind's eye has no existence at all on the dial of the real watch where its place is taken by the small seconds-hand dial here then we have a great number of inaccurate depositions and yet how often in the course of a day do most people look at their watches there is no doubt moreover that all these people whom you have thus proved to be wrong acted in perfect good faith not one of them had any wilful intention of deceiving again it is not uncommon to find a man who has owned his watch for many years utterly unable to state whether the hours on the dial are indicated by roman numerals or arabic figures this means only lack of observation but quite as common is mistaken observation an amusing practical test of this is thus related of professor duke in order to test the memory and susceptibility to suggestion of his pupils he performed the following experiment on forty-eight boys between the ages of fourteen and seventeen he passed a silver coin about the size of a fifty-cent piece around the class instructing each boy to examine it carefully but giving no further indications as to the purpose of his action at the end of the lesson which in other respects proceeded as usual professor duke having again taken possession of the coin addressed the class as follows you have no doubt observed that the coin which i handed round had a hole in it now i should like to test your powers of observation i am therefore going to ask each of you to indicate the point on the coin where the hole is found just take a piece of paper draw a circle upon it and indicate roughly the position of the head on the coin and of the hole which you observed as a matter of fact there was no hole in the coin at all nevertheless no fewer than forty four out of the forty eight pupils indicated the position of the alleged hole in the coin some even indicating the position of two holes of the four remaining pupils only one positively asserted that there was no hole in the coin the other three merely said that they had not observed the hole this alone is interesting enough but there were several other features in the case which are well worth recording in the first place the one and only individual who had not been open to suggestion was a boy who had previously shown his independence by giving considerable difficulty in matters of discipline furthermore several of the younger boys even after they were told that there was no hole in the coin absolutely refused to admit this the scientific american commenting upon this experiment remarks it hardly needs to be pointed out how significant an observation of this character is in its bearing on legal testimony we must not be surprised that the witness may under certain circumstances not merely make a certain statement incompatible with facts but may even insist in his erroneous belief in the face of overwhelming evidence against it and all this in perfectly good faith once an observer of a magnificent military parade noted the exact and well trained marching of the soldiers and in describing it afterwards said positively and every man was exactly the same height which was far from being true as the soldiers were of varying heights but the strong impression of harmony and precision had given an unconscious effect of uniformity of height all of which goes to prove that with the best intentions in the world false testimony may be given further than this if desired false testimony may be induced by suggestion of the questioner indeed in the giving of evidence suggestion plays a most important part the simple fact of questioning a witness of pressing him to answer enormously increases the risk of errors in his evidence the form of the question also influences the value of the reply that is made to it this has given rise to the well-known prohibition of leading questions in courts of law let us suppose for instance that some persons are questioned about the color of a certain dog the replies are likely to be much more correct if we ask the witnesses what is the color of the dog than if we were to say to them was the dog white or was it brown the question will be positively suggestive if we ask was the dog white to such a question the answer is probably of no value in questioning witnesses that is to say in pressing them and forcing their memory we may obtain it is true a much more extensive deposition than if we leave them free to answer spontaneously any advantage thus obtained however is problematical since we lose in fidelity whatever we may gain in extent of information a trained observation takes things in at a glance and correctly too mr robert houdin gives this interesting description of training in his own eye as quoted in the lock and key library my son and i passed rapidly before a toy shop or any other displaying a variety of wares and cast an attentive glance upon it a few steps farther on we drew pencil and paper from our pockets and tried which could describe the greater number of objects seen in passing i must own that my son reached a perfection far greater than mine for he could often write down forty objects while i could scarce reach thirty often feeling vexed at this defeat i would return to the shop and verify his statement but he rarely made a mistake my male readers will certainly understand the possibility of this but they will recognize the difficulty as for my lady readers i am convinced beforehand they will not be of the same opinion for they daily perform far more astounding feats thus for instance i can safely assert that the lady seeing another pass at full speed in a carriage will have had time to analyse her toilet from her bonnet to her shoes and be able to describe not only the fashion and quality of the stuffs but also say if the lace be real or only machine-made i have known ladies to do this zangwill in big bow mystery thus argues the worthlessness of most casual observations sir everything depends on our getting down to the root of the matter what percentage of average evidence should you think is thorough plain simple unvarnished fact the truth the whole truth and nothing but the truth fifty said the minister humoring him a little not five I say nothing of lapses of memory or inborn defects of observational power, though in the suspiciously precise recollection of dates and events, possessed by ordinary witnesses in important trials taking place years after the occurrences involved, is one of the most amazing things in the curiosities of modern jurisprudence. I defy you, sir, to tell me what you had for dinner last Monday, or what exactly you were saying and doing at five o'clock last Tuesday afternoon nobody whose life does not run in mechanical grooves can do anything of the sort unless of course the facts have been very impressive but this by the way the great obstacle to voracious observation is the element of prepossession in all vision has it ever struck you sir that we never see any one more than once if that the first time we meet a man we may possibly see him as he is the second time our vision is colored and modified by the memory of the first do our friends appear to us as they appear to strangers do our rooms our furniture our pipes strike our eye as they would strike the eye of an outsider looking on them for the first time can a mother see her baby's ugliness or a lover his mistress shortcomings though they stare everybody else in the face can we see ourselves as others see us no habit prepossession changes all the mind is a large factor of every so-called external fact the eye sees sometimes what it wishes to see more often what it expects to see you follow me sir ten exactness of detail in this connection we are not discussing the value of evidence per se but merely for what it is worth in the construction of a detective story the bringing forth of false evidence to complicate the mysteries of the story is entirely permissible if fairly done and to do this fairly and properly it is wise to make a study of evidence and its relative value as we have seen the average citizen is not observant he rarely could tell the details of an incident he has witnessed unless he were already familiar with the conditions therefore the author of a worthwhile detective story must make it his business to familiarize himself perfectly and accurately with the conditions he is describing a lack of this familiarity with details is often seen in our best artists who portray scenes of whose especial characteristics they are carelessly unobservant an amusing instance of this sort is remarked in this letter which appeared in one of our popular periodicals dear sir your minister's number has just come to hand i assume that some degree of accuracy is desirable even in a cartoon most of the clergy at whom your shafts of wit are aimed seem to be of the episcopal church and i guess we can stand it but what hurts is the vesture in which you attempt to garb us for instance charlie the assistant minister at st joseph's and by the way one thousand two hundred dollars is a large salary for charlie from his looks i should not say he was worth as much as that at least he would not be as assistant to me is dressed in a long old-fashioned surplice with bishop's sleeves young assistants sometimes have episcopal bees in their bonnets but never episcopal sleeves in their surplices again charlie has around his neck what appears to be a feather boa or a tippet twelve hundred dollars would not allow him to sport such luxury lastly charlie who is apparently meant to be a very high churchman at least he looks like it is wearing geneva bands what a combination a long surplice with bishop's sleeves, fur collar, and Geneva bands is not to be found in the heavens above or the earth beneath. It might be in the other place, but I have my doubts. If any of your artists ever went to church for any purpose, incidentally, it might benefit them and raise the moral tone of the paper, they would see what kind of garments a minister does wear, and their fun would have added force and pungency, I think. I am sure life always wants to be correct, even in its humor what i have said about mr walker's little picture applies with equal force to mr flagg's extraordinarily vested parson really to what church does he belong they say we episcopalians never disturb the peace can it be that mr flagg has the idea that presbyterians with their strenuous views on predestination and the election are vested in that way very sincerely yours cyrus townsend brady rector kansas city montana september twenty fifth nineteen twelve 11 theories of evidence if it is necessary then for an artist to attend carefully to the costuming of his models how much more necessary is it for the writer of a detective story to be carefully accurate even to the tiniest detail of his work and as evidence is part and parcel of every detective story let the earnest young writer make a close study of it from the best examples in literature read poe the murders in the rue morgue is all evidence read gaboriau he understood the fine points of testimony read conan doyle read anna catherine green and then compare and co-note and contrast their presentation and treatment of evidence this subject is well summed up in the following quotation from the man in the corner in which the author both entertains and instructs us with his theories but supposing it were of paramount importance that you should give an accurate description of a man who sat next to you for half an hour to-day how would you proceed i should say that he was of medium height five foot eight nine or ten he interrupted quietly how can one tell to an inch or two rejoined polly crossly he was between colours what's that he inquired blandly neither fair nor dark his nose Well what was his nose like will you sketch it i am not an artist his nose was fairly straight his eyes were neither dark nor light his hair had the same striking peculiarity he was neither short nor tall his nose was neither aquiline nor snub he recapitulated sarcastically no she retorted he was just ordinary looking "'Would you know him again, say, to-morrow, and among a number of other men who were neither tall nor short, dark nor fair, aquiline nor snub-nosed, etc?' "'I don't know. I might. He was certainly not striking enough to be specially remembered.' "'Exactly,' he said, while he leant forward excitedly, for all the world like a jack-in-the-box let loose. "'Precisely. And you are a journalist, call yourself one at least, and it should be part of your business to notice and describe people.' i don't mean only the wonderful personage with the clear saxon features the fine blue eyes the noble brow and classic face but the ordinary person the person who represents ninety out of every hundred of his own kind the average englishman say of the middle classes who is neither very tall nor very short who wears a moustache which is neither fair nor dark but which masks his mouth and a top hat which hides the shape of his head and brow a man in fact who dresses like hundreds of his fellow-creatures Moves like them, speaks like them, has no peculiarity. Try to describe him, to recognize him, say a week hence, among his other eighty-nine doubles. Worse still, to swear his life away if he happened to be implicated in some crime wherein your recognition of him would place the halter round his neck. Try that, I say, and having utterly failed, you will more readily understand how one of the greatest scoundrels unhung is still at large. And why the mystery on the underground railway was never cleared up two paragraphs from the whispering man give another twist to the theory of evidence and whether absolutely true or not it is interesting and convincing Jeffrey caught the word out of my mouth evidence there was evidence against every single innocent person in this case Pomeroy Armstrong Gwendolyn Carr the only person against whom there wasn't any was the guilty man himself no evidence doesn't amount to much until it's tied on behind the right guess what does the best evidence in the world amount to anyway when it comes to that he concluded it's utterly meaningless except when it's tied on behind some theory like the tail on a kite as for expert testimony there's only one kind of true expert and he's just an inspired guesser no more no less a contrast or discussion of the merits of circumstantial evidence and the testimony of an eyewitness is always provocative of interest though like many other discussions it is really futile it carries a certain weight if cleverly set down sherlock holmes thus remarks upon it i could hardly imagine a more damning case i remarked if ever circumstantial evidence pointed to a criminal it does so here circumstantial evidence is a very tricky thing answered holmes thoughtfully it may seem to point very straight to one thing but if you shift your point of view a little you may find it pointing in an equally uncompromising manner to something entirely different and seemingly opposed to this is the opinion of the great detective john w murray who says i believe in circumstantial evidence i have found it surer than direct evidence in many many cases where circumstantial evidence and direct evidence unite of course the result is most satisfactory there are those who say that circumstances may combine in a false conclusion this is far less apt to occur than the falsity of direct evidence given by a witness who lies point-blank and who cannot be contradicted save by a judgment of his falsity through the manner of his lying few people are good liars many of them make their lies too probable they outdo truth itself to detect a liar is a great gift it is a greater gift to detect the lie i have known instances where by good fortune i detected the liar then the lie and learned the whole truth simply by listening to the lie and thereby judging the truth there is no hard and fast rule for this detection the ability to do it rests with the man it is largely a matter of instinct while mary e wilkins in the long arm voices the same theory with equal cleverness crime detection is not a secret art anybody can do it if he has the wits and the time and patience to get at all the facts and if he knows enough of the ways of men and women it sounds like boasting to say so much but it isn't we all fail too often to be vain and when i fail i always say i couldn't get at all the facts or i didn't know enough about the sort of people concerned zeng will too states these principles clearly pray do not consider me impertinent but have you ever given any attention to the science of evidence how do you mean asked the home secretary rather puzzled adding with a melancholy smile i have had to lately of course i've never been a criminal lawyer like some of my predecessors but i should hardly speak of it as a science i look upon it as a question of common sense pardon me sir it is the most subtle and difficult of all the sciences it is indeed rather the science of the sciences what is the whole of inductive logic as laid down say by bacon and mill but an attempt to appraise the value of evidence the said evidence being the trails left by the creator so to speak the creator has i say it in all reverence drawn a myriad red herrings across the track but the true scientist refuses to be baffled by superficial appearances in detecting the secrets of nature the vulgar herd catches at the gross apparent fact but the man of insight knows that what lies on the surface does lie so realizing the importance of the presentation of evidence as one of the prime factors in our work, let us endeavor to gain a working comprehension of the subject and use it with discrimination and discernment. End of chapter twenty two.